welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the World of Speakers. And today we have a very special guest, a guest with winning glasses. Although you don't see, they are bright and colorful, and she is ready to talk with you about her experience speaking, about her tips for speaking, and about how she manages to gain more stage time. Her name is Tamsin Webster, and she is a messaging strategist. She is a speaker, and she's an author. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I am delightful today. Delightful. It is a good day. I like that. It's always fun to think of those words that you choose to use when someone asks you how you are. And I haven't heard a delightful in a while. So it's quite delightful. Uh, well, I am glad that I that fills you with delight. <laughs> now, is delightful a go-to word for you? Is that part of your core messaging? Just curious. It actually is. Yeah. I, uh, I love things that spark joy, not to get too KonMari about it, but it's, I think that we need more delight in the life in our lives. And so, yeah, I think when they prompt delight, I like to make sure that I note that. Well, that sounds delicious. And I'm excited to see <laughs> what we have served up here today. I first like to start all of these podcasts the same. And instead of reading a long bio where we talk about how awesome you are and everybody's eyes roll because they're secretly jealous about the traction that you've gotten, I want everyone to know that you are a human with plenty of stories. <laughs> and I want to pull one of those stories off the shelf so we can just get to know you a little bit. Sure. If you had to pull one story that I could use as ammunition in the most positive way, not bullets, but just something to have in my pocket, if I ever meet someone and I think they might be a good connection with you, I'm like, whoa, you got to meet Tamsin. This one time she fill in that story. And if that's the only story that this person had, what would that story be that best represents you? No pressure. I know. That's like such a big ask. It was my first job out of grad school, which in and of itself is a story because I went to grad school thinking I wanted to be an art museum director. And yet my first job out of grad school was as a management consultant because I got lured by the high pay of business consulting post MBA. And I actually, I landed in quite a good place. It's a place that's still around. It's called Pritchett. They're a change management consulting firm. And my job there as a research associate was really to help build out their communications arm of their practice. So there was, you know, we're figuring out things like mergers and acquisitions and cultural reorganizations and those kinds of things. And a lot of that comes down to communication. Now, generally, it was interesting work, but there are a couple of things that kind of got in the way. One is, though your listeners may not be able to see me, is that I am brunette. They may discover that I am outspoken, and I am generally at this point an adopted New Englander. And you plant all of that in Dallas, and I'm going to be wildly unfair to Dallas here for a moment. Dallas and I just did not get along. <laughs> I thanked Dallas for the knowledge it gave me. I did not thank it for the 50 pounds I gained when I lived there, thanks to chimichangas and cheese. Brisket. <laughs> Brisket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But to me, my time in Dallas, and actually a lot of what I do is crystallized in this performance review that I had. And 
the head of HR as any place, there's this annual meeting, annual performance review, whatever there's the head of HR was this little woman. She was small, but round. Her name was Mickey Grace. And I remember this distinctly. And Mickey was a nice enough woman and she meant well, but in this performance review, which started off really pretty well, I thought (laughs) she was talking about, you've got great ideas. You've built out this whole thing. The head consultants have such great things to say about you, but, and there were just one or two little things that, and I was like, oh God, there's always a, but, but what was so shocking to me was what came out of her mouth the next The first of which that I such remembered was that I should do my hair. Mm. The second was that I should wear more lipstick. And the third was that sometimes, Samson, you come across as cheeky, she said. Now, to me, that's a compliment. (laughs) Not the do your hair and wear more lipstick thing. That was freaking Dallas. And even though I do wear (laughs) lipstick and whatever, I just apparently did not wear enough or the right kind and do my hair, I think was some process of the fact that it wasn't blonde and shellacked into place. Now, to be clear, you're talking about Dallas Estate, not Dallas Soap Opera, because I just want to make sure we're talking. Dallas Estate, I know, you would think, but it turns out very similar. Okay, okay. But this whole cheeky thing, at the moment, it was actually pretty devastating because also I should mention that 50 pounds, like also wrapped up into this quote unquote performance review was the fact that, oh, by the way, have you ever, you know, thought about losing weight? And I was like, you did not just say this to me. And oh, by the way, you know, we kind of prefer it when women wear dresses around here and not pants. (laughs) Oh my Lord. Wow. This little short round is really throwing you around here. Oh my gosh. So it wasn't awesome, but this cheeky thing is what stuck in my head. Because as I said, to me, cheeky. Real quick. What is your definition of cheeky prior to this performance review? Yeah. So prior to this performance review, for me, cheeky was a little bit sassy, okay, but with kind of a wink and a nod, right? Like to me, cheeky is like, there's a pointedness to it, but there is, it's like a wink and a nod. It's kind of a, a friendly impish quality. It's like a hybrid sarcasm that's endearing. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even say sarcastic. It's just that it's a little challenging of convention, but in a mischievous way is what I would say. Now, was there also a humor, a humor element to it? Were there opportunities for humor? Were you sort of somebody who was bringing jokes and elements to it? Not really. No. Because I associate a little like the word cheeky with just a kind of a little joker, a little teasy, a little joshy and little stuff like that. Yeah. It's like I said, impish is what I would. Okay. I like that. Impish. impish. That is not how she meant it. (laughs) So she, her definition of cheeky was a negative. Oh, absolutely. It was overstepping my bounds, essentially. It was that uh, didn't know my place. So it sounds like that was a substitute word for the word she wanted to use, but was maybe less savvy about it. Well, she was certainly direct about everything else. So I don't know why she wouldn't have been direct about that. So, you know, the thing was that this, that tension that I felt in the moment was she thinks this is a bad thing and I don't. So that really in that moment, I was like, well, who, whose definition am I going to listen to here? And if I'm going to listen to my own definition of it, what does it mean for me? If this is the thing that all this, the rest of this otherwise positive performance review was building to was like, oh, but you're cheeky. And it was kind of like, well, what does that actually mean? And the reason why I say that on what, in a lot of ways it was foundational, because it was in that moment that truly that I was like, I don't agree. I can see why you are saying that about me. And I don't consider that to be a negative. 
But what I also took was that there was, you know, the way that I'm wired was to say that there's always some reason why that was given as feedback to be worked on. And it was one of those things where it really, in a lot of ways, set me on the path that I am now, which is that I think part of what I know I didn't do well early was that I didn't understand how to win the war for my ideas, right? I was very much set on winning individual battles. When you're young and you're the kind of freshest face in an organization, which I was, so not only was I like a junior person in the form of research associate, but I was also actually young because I went to business school straight out of undergrad and I graduated at 23. So I was young. I was younger than the rest of the research associates by four or five years. And that youthful inexperience played out in the fact that even if I had a good idea, I don't think I was always really great at articulating it. So in a lot of ways is one of the things that was became so important to me partly as a result of that and partly from other experiences I had to say, I am fine being called cheeky when it is a compliment, but I never want to be called that as a negative again. What can I do to improve how I could get an idea across so that the idea survives, even if it's not me? How can I put the idea forward so that an idea doesn't fail because I did? And I think that that story really is what set me on the path to that. It's like, what can I do to make sure that that I am not the barrier to my ideas being heard? Okay. So one word that you said kind of stuck out there, which I might just latch onto and see how far I can pull the thread, this idea of improving. And if you look at that word, I see prove. It's almost like you weren't able to prove your definition of cheeky in the eyes of someone else. And that messaging sort of died at the table. But the first part of improve is I'm, and you're taking the responsibility for it. You're aware you were sort of put back, but you also were smart enough to go, there's a reason why this is happening. And instead of taking that on with yourself and questioning your own integrity, your own values, your own mission, your own vision, you sort of place that on the messaging and how the idea or the idea of you is communicated in that work environment. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Not to say that I was immediate either. I mean, it did rock me. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. What do I really feel about this? And and it really wasn't that moment as a result of all that where I said, no, there are aspects to what this person described as cheeky that are actually important to me about how I am. But I know, and I knew from other things and experiences in my life that sometimes it could, I could come across as overly sharp and other things, I mean, oh, so much of this is just wrapped up in being a woman in corporate America in the early 90s in Dallas. Let's just all, that needs to be said as well. The soap opera, yes, which unfortunately still has some running seasons all over the world right now. Correct. And given the timing and all of that, it's definitely one, a, one of those classic examples of the well-known phenomenon that a lot of times women have to guard how they say something much, much more than sometimes their male colleagues do. But it's one of those things where, however negative the origin of it, it is absolutely what has led me to the work that I do today, which is very much focused on how do you make sure that the idea survives, like no matter what, because it's the kind of person I am and it's the kind of person that I'm for, which is somebody or people who serve ideas that are bigger than they are and people who are willing to like 
Yeah, to make sure that their ideas heard, not just spoken. And as a woman, knowing that it's more than just saying it, it's more than just presenting yourself, you have to be careful about how you're saying it, and even more importantly, how people are interpreting it, which gives you the power to be able to improve your message to keep it truthful for you, but still packaged in a way that maybe other people can see that as opposed to just taking it for whatever they think is surface level cheeky. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, because when it comes down to communication, I think, you know, a couple of things to be true. One is that a failure of communication is almost always as much or more on the sender side as it on the receiver side. And that if an idea is important enough, then it's your job, my job to do the work, to get it across. The second thing I'd say is that it's worth making that check on what are you willing to sacrifice for something? You know, ultimately I decided not to stay in Dallas because while that may have been useful feedback to me in a way, it was also everything else was so indicative that there was such a cross purposes of values and assumptions and point of view on the world that not only did I leave Dallas, I left that industry and I went back to the arts because I was like, this is just, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go to a place I'm going to do what I can to improve myself, to do the best I can with the information I've got. That's on me. But I don't need to make it harder for myself by being in a place that just fundamentally doesn't value some of those elements. So it really was so useful to have such, in a lot of ways, a negative experience so early in my career because it taught me really early how necessary it was to draw lines in the sand and be really clear about what about myself I wasn't willing to compromise on. And what I did see as you know, places where it would be worth my while to find other ways to succeed. So I, I'm happy for it in the end, but in the moment, <laughs> it was not fun. I love the sand idea. Sometimes I'll remind people that the line in the sand depends on where you stand. True. And how dry the sand is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you left the beach entirely to go play on another patch of sand. So let's talk about the speaker sand in which you find yourself in. When did you make that transition? Was it a hybrid where you were working in the arts and you found yourself speaking? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I think the first time, I will still say that even though I'm a professional speaker, I am first and foremost a professional who speaks. I, Yes, I am a paid keynoter and all of that. It is not my primary business. I see it absolutely as a form of marketing and business development. It is a useful stream of income, but not my primary one. By my life as a speaker started about 18 years ago, actually. And I started as, depending on which side of the business you come up in, but what is known on the kind of entertainment side of the business is content speaker, meaning that I started speaking on behalf of the organizations I worked for and spoke at, you know, in the breakout rooms of association conferences, right? So a lot of times the people are juggling to try to get to be the keynote at association conferences, forgetting, of course, that there's this group of folks just churning it out and free noting, as my husband and I have come to call it, in the breakout rooms with the content that people are actually going to use. And that started, like I said, it started about 18 years ago. At the time, I was working at Harvard Medical School, which is where I was working. And I was the head of what's known as development communications. So what I was in charge of was the communication strategy around the fundraising. So I help the fundraisers with their messaging. And I love advancement. Yeah, I work at UCI as well, University of California, Irvine, and I'm a big supporter of advancement, but I just love the name, advancement. It's a nice way of saying, give me your money. Advancement, which is so (laughs) opaque to everybody else. 
And like anybody in the industry calls it advancement and you always have to translate it. So that's why I'm like, again, development as well. Like nobody knows what that means unless you've been on the fundraising side of things. Fundraising, it's all that it is. And where it started was that I was head of that initiative there and I had hired a brand strategy firm to help us put the messaging into pretty formats. And they liked to speak at the association conferences obviously to advance their work. And so they brought me on originally as a co-presenter. And then between that and seeing kind of at the at the this now again, 10, 12 years ago at the start of start of like social, I would see people give talks about some of that kind of stuff. And I'm like, really? Like if that's the bar, I can meet that bar. Like as far as speaking, I mean, I'd spent a fair amount of time on stages when I was in high school, you know, doing musical theater and things like that. And I was like, I can do this. So it really started as a process of sharing the work that I had done with other people who were doing similar kinds of work so that I could help make their job easier based on the lessons that I had learned. And just like I don't feel like I ever stopped being a change management consultant, I don't think I've ever stopped being that kind of speaker. Meaning I speak about things that I have developed to make my own work easier. And I talk about them so that I can make other people who have to do that same kind of work easier. Like it's just part of my mantra to myself. The first piece of it is to be useful. And that really still guides my work. Even if I'm giving a keynote, I'm really, I'm very, very focused on not just wowing the crowd, but actually changing them. Like I really want to drive actual changes in thinking and behavior, not just rile them up for a moment and nothing happens after. Well, that's interesting. Let's dive into this a little bit because I think the story really gave us a good idea of who you are. And I appreciate you sharing that vulnerable moment, but I think hopefully it can empower all the other women who are facing those on the daily being called cheeky when they think it's a positive and they're on the wrong beach in a soap opera that isn't necessarily the right fit, (laughs) but the soap opera is going to continue. So it's about breaking that mold. But I like how this sort of over this process, it went from your job to what you said here about speaking on what made your job easier in order to be useful. From a speaking tactics or strategy standpoint, maybe you can dissect that a little bit for us because I find a lot of our listeners are really good at what they do, but they still find struggle when it comes to the topics to speak on. And there's these, the more cliche, I'm leadership or I'm communication, I'm these things. But what you just said seems to be an interesting thread of speaking about what you're good at and how your job has become easier to be useful. That sounds like a nice reverse engineer way to get into a top level topic. Maybe you can explain the dynamics. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's foundational to my approach. So I love that you keep using thread because I refer to my approach as the red thread. And it really begins first and foremost with determining a question that people are asking for which they haven't yet found an answer. And there's really two ways of going about that. One is you already have an idea and then your job is to figure out how do I establish the utility of that idea, the usefulness of that idea to the audience. And so I find this question answer piece very useful. If you think of your idea as an answer, then you need to figure out what question is your audience asking right now that it's an answer to. And here's the kicker. It can't be the question you wish they were asking or you think they should be asking. It needs to be a question they're actually asking, a question that would be useful to them to have an answer to. And I would say one of the biggest mistakes I see when people come to me for help to make their ideas more irresistible is that's one of the biggest things that they miss. They're just like, well, 
they should be asking this question. I'm like, yeah, but they're not. So we need to figure out how to tie it to a question they're actually asking right now, because otherwise they're not going to be remotely interested in what you have to say, because they don't know why they should care yet. And you can tell them all the benefits and all the stuff that they're going to get. But right now that was going to feel like it's taking them off track of something else that's more important to them right now. So what's that more important thing? And I think that's a very useful way, if you've already got an idea, to go back and say, what's the question? The other thing to do is if you're looking for an idea, if you're looking for a topic, is to say, well, what questions are out there that people haven't answered for themselves yet that I think I could answer based on who I am, what I know, what I do? I think that that's one of those things that can come from observing the patterns of your life. And it doesn't come just necessarily from what you do. So for instance, I, yeah, I've spent 25 years now in marketing and brand strategy, but I think the kinds of questions I know how to answer are how do you close a gap between aspiration and, and reality? If you have an idea about a thing, but it's not actually happening, like, what do you need to do to make that thing real? Because that's a question I've been answering over and over and over again. How do you get people to see the power in something? How do you get someone to see enough of a power in something to want to actually do something about it? Like that's, the kind of question that I've been answering over and over again. And if you start from that perspective, sometimes that will lead you to a new answer and a new idea and a new perspective that other people haven't adopted yet. You said aspiration to sort of reality, but for some reason in my mind, once I heard aspiration to something, I thought activation. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you're looking at it with two different fabrics, essentially. One where you have your answer to a solution and one where you're looking for within what you have that can answer the question that somebody already has. On the having your solution and trying to find the question, one thing I heard, I believe it was in South Carolina at a some sort of a conference, but it stuck with me enough to remember the idea and the reality that people don't search for answers. They search for questions. If you go to Google, right? Like I've got something I need with my sailboat that I'm going to say, how do I do this for this piece on my sailboat? That's right. And if we think about that, that's how we go out there and search for information. We're not saying I need this part. (laughs) That's correct. Yeah. Sometimes you are like, where can I find this part? Yeah. And that's one of the things that, yes, this is why the framing is a question to me. I found it's just the most effective, most efficient way to get quickly to that. I mean, many people have heard of this, like what problem do you solve? The problem with that advice, however, is that a lot of times we end up solving a problem that we know somebody has, but it's not the problem they think they have. And you have to solve the problem somebody thinks they have before you can solve the problem they know they have. And the only way you're going to get a sense of what problem they think they have is to think about what questions they're asking right now. What are the symptoms of that that they're trying to take care of? Because we're not trying to, you know, when you've got, this is kind of a random example, but it's like, Recently, I've had a lot of things to the pandemic and poor ergonomics. I've had like a lot of pain in my neck, right? And I know the cause of that, at least the way that a lot of doctors would think of it, is that I don't even want to admit it, but like at the ripe age of 47, I have pretty severe arthritis in my neck. And that is this quote unquote cause of it. But the symptom where it started is like, why does my neck hurt? And how do I get my neck to stop hurting? And the thing is like, Well, if you can just go to the surface answer, which is, well, you've got arthritis in your neck, you're led to, as I was, to say, a doctor will go, well, I'll put a shot in your neck and we'll just numb the nerves and you're not going to have pain. 
But then after a month, the pain came back. Why? Because we didn't do anything about the arthritis and we can't. So where did the arthritis come from? What the arthritis came from the way that I sit and the lack of mobility in my neck. So it didn't actually, what actually permanently lifted the pain was to go deeper. But you can't start with someone say, if I've got pain in my neck, you know, the first thing is not going to be like, we'll do these exercises, right? The first thing is, how do you stop the pain? And then you back up into those deeper things. And I think that's one of the things that I encourage more speakers to think about, which is particularly since there's so much competition around, as you said, things like leadership and communication and sales. If you don't go deeper than the surface problem or the surface topic, then it's really hard to stand out. And so the more that you can say, I solve this specific question, I answer this specific question, I answer how to get your sales teams to perform to their potential, not just I speak on sales or I help people overcome their fear or I help millennial women get over the obstacles that are in their way. Well, now I have like as a potential meeting planner that's going to hire you, that's way easier to say, do we need a leadership speaker or we do we need a speaker that's going to help us develop leadership at every level? That's like a different, you're just at a totally different place. And I think that the real key to that comes back to that, what question are they asking? Because if you say to a potential meeting planner or meeting organizer, this is the question I answer, it's going to be way easier for them to go, you are the speaker for us because that is a question we're trying to solve right now. Yeah, I like that. One thing that I look at in a derivative of this is figuring out what people want and then giving them what they need because it's not always the same. If you can find out what they want, then you can deliver what they need. So if they think they need a sales speaker and in talking with a meeting planner, you can uncover that they want a sales speaker, but what they really need is to answer that particular question you can morph your message to make sure that they feel like they've got those checks in the boxes. Absolutely. I mean, and you still need to deliver them what they need. You need to say, okay, in order to help your sales, we need to answer this question instead. But that's why it's so important for you as a speaker to be able to back that up. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, to the point that you were making earlier, Ryan, I see so many speakers who just have an answer. They're like, I'm going to speak to you about this method or this model, or I've got this phrase that pays, but you try to scratch deeper than that. And there's not much there. And so a way to know that you might have that problem would also be to look at how well did you weather the pandemic? Because the people who I could see who had actually depth to their content, where there was actually deeper thinking than I've just got three points and three, like, and some awesome stories that I tell in my keynote, the ones that were actually really able to sustain and even to grow were the ones that were like, okay, I had been doing this keynote, but you know what? I've got all this other content that's behind that. So now let me talk about this other stuff. And if you don't have like a second and a third layer to be able to go to about your content, it doesn't even mean that you have to be a consultant or any of that, but it's like your ability to go to that deeper layer is what is going to show up in a higher quality keynote. And that doesn't come unless you've done some of that hard work of not only coming up with a new idea, a new answer, but going back and figuring out what question it solves and then building a super solid case that connects those two. That says, this is why this is the right answer to that question based on what you, the audience, believes to be true. 
somebody that comes to mind is Marcus Sheraton. Are you familiar with him? Oh, I love Marcus. We're good friends. We've been friends forever. His book, They Ask, You Answer, is really fundamentally the second part of what you're talking about, where if you want to find a solution, whether the pool business goes out or not, find out every single question people are asking about pools and answer them and your life will sort of connect with those people. So I I think that it's super powerful and we forget to go outside and to go deeper to those questions. I think it's a great reminder that your speech topic should answer a question, that your speaking category should have questions underneath the surface that uncover why you are a topical check in that box, top category speaker. That's right. And it's important to have the big bucket, right? Because meeting organizers, bureaus, agents, like that's where everybody starts. That's what they think they want, right? You have to be that. Right. And you have to be able to say, yeah, okay, this is my sales talk, or this is my leadership talk, or this is my innovation talk. That's fine. And then be more specific within that. We need to be able to talk about, you know, one of my clients, Sarah Ross, like, yes, she's a leadership speaker, but with the work that we did together, we got very, very clear on the problem that she solves. The question that she helps answer is how leaders can effectively manage the stress of being a leader. And her answer is kind of increase their leader, what she calls their leadership capacity, Again, it's kind of the same thing of like, if you're trying to solve, you know, if you've got a very specific problem in your house, let's say you've got a a leaky roof, you could go with a handyman or you could go with a person that's like, I'm the roof leak specialist. Which one are you going to hire? Well, both of them could probably solve your problem, but you're going to feel much more confident about the decision when someone is doing the thing that you're asking for. And I know that's scary, particularly to less experienced speakers to say, oh my gosh, but if I'm that focused, I'm not going to get hired. Wrong. Because it's the people who are incredibly specific that are the ones that get hired. Because anytime they're talking to somebody else who says, you know, I've got this problem. They're like, I know exactly the person because there's a person that comes to mind about solving that particular problem. You know, the way I often frame it is that the narrower you focus, ultimately, the broader your reach will be. If for no other reason, then that kind of narrow focus allows you to be so clear and so expert on that thing that nobody else can touch you eventually. I mean, some of that's time. I hate, you know, as somebody who used to be a, the youngest person in the room, it's like awful to me in a way that it's like, I'm not that anymore. But there are certain things that really do just come with time and you can speed that up by doing the extra work. But I find that the more that you can focus, the more powerful and more profitable a speaker you will be. You are preaching the choir here. I tell people if you're for everyone, you're for no one. And all this resonates really well. So let's bring it home with maybe understanding all of the dynamics of getting the questions behind the keynotes and all of that. How have you found the most success in gaining more stage time, putting the pro in the professional, getting people to pay you? What's maybe the one top tip that you could leave us with here? Because I think really the meat and potatoes of the value of this conversation is challenging people on making their messages to improve their messages so that they can prove that they have substance behind what's going on behind the scenes. So with all that flash forward, we've got it. 
What's the one thing that you found the most success with in gaining more stages, gaining more fees, you know, the professional side of getting paid for the speaking? It was funny, the Jane Atkinson, who does a lot of work with speakers and sales. And so she asked this on a very similar question on her Facebook page the other day. She framed it this way. She said, what makes the difference between a really successful speaker and somebody who's struggling in their speaking business? And there's lots of people who are like mindset and experience and whatever. And I came in with be easy to work with. Love it. Honestly. And I think it's really undersold how being professional in every exchange, like your professionalism as a speaker shows up in every exchange you have with your audience. And that can start on your website. How do you come across? Is your website easy to navigate? Is it clear what your message is? Is it clear that you speak? Is it clear how to get in touch with you? Is it clear what your topics are? Is it clear what you look like and act like on stage? Is it easy for them to find that stuff? Is it easy for them when they reach out to you? Is it easy for them to get in touch with you? Does someone contact them right away? How much of a prima donna are you about, you know, I'll only present from my laptop or I'll, you know, I won't send you slides in advance. I'm like, you know what? You want the slides in advance? I'll give you the slides in advance. Totally fine. You want me to present off of your machine? Again, I will totally do that. My job is to make sure that I can deliver my best talk to you in your whatever your constraints are, because they are stressed out enough about this. And the more that we come swanning in with like, I only do it this way because that's the way that you're like, no, no, you're giving an excuse because you're working on that talk up to the last freaking second. And you're trying to borrow every last (laughs) little bit of time. Don't lie to yourself. And to quote my friend and colleague, Lori Gassner Odding, you are not that important. You just aren't. I am of the opinion that we are entirely too protective of our IP. I know people who like freak out when they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to record it. I'm like, record it, share it. I don't care. Get me out there. The more that people can know about my stuff, the more that they can see what I do, the more that they can talk about me, do it. Be integrity. I don't have it. It's totally fine. Because again, let me be clear for my business model, keynoting is not the only thing I do. It's a form of marketing and business development. So your mileage may vary. But it really comes down to, in my mind, be easy to work with. Show up early, communicate, communicate when you land, show up at the tech rehearsals, give them what they want, deliver a kick-ass talk, absolutely make it easy. And if that means you need to hire someone who's better at that stuff than you are to make sure that that's being taken care of, then it is worth it. And by the way, if you're worried about they're like, oh my gosh, I don't make enough money to do that. Trust me, if you hire somebody, you will figure out a way to make enough money to make sure that that person's getting paid for. It always works out. Be easy to work with. I guess I'm a little passionate about that. I like it. It sounds like if you are giving free notes that translates to fee notes, eventually it's not about chasing that almighty dollar. And I think that's a good point because I really... I guess I get a bad taste in my mouth when I see a lot of speaker coaches advertise the speaking profession solely in terms of how much money you're going to make. And I see speaking as a a path to open up sort of Pandora's box when it comes to working with you or getting to know you or liking you or establishing a longer relationship with you. And yes, fee integrity is very key. It's something I work on and try to have that hard line. And I've grown to that. But I think we all can start off with that free notes and we can all give free notes along the way. I still do. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, let me be clear. Like I don't, for the same kind of talk, I said no to a gig earlier today where they were asking for a talk for half my fee. And I'm like, I can't do that. They can't make it up with book buy. And I was just like, I don't have time to do it at that fee. But it's one of those things where it's like, if I had time to do it at that fee, I would do it at that fee. I'll contrast that with another person who, again, it was in this case, it was an industry that I have a lot of history in higher ed. I know that they don't have a lot of money generally in higher ed. It's strategically useful for me to be in front of them. It's in January. And so the question that I asked Jen, who's my right hand, I said, just, can you tell me statistically that weekend they're asking or how often have I booked gigs on that week? And when she came back and she's like, you don't usually have a gig. I'm like, fine, then let's do that one because that one's actually useful to me. And on that one, I am willing to take half fee, even though on a different inquiry earlier today, I was like, not on that one. Yes, on that one, because I'm not going to give away a middle of September, early October date for half my fee when that is very likely to be taken up with a full paying gig at some point. So I think that I'm with you (laughs) getting like ranty about speaker coaches that are like, oh, you'll make X amount of money because A, those are the outliers. It is super easy to like, you know, look at the big money makers in the business and go, well, I can be like them. Actually, no, (laughs) you can't. This is a bell curve. And I'm not saying you're not capable of it, but the realistic probability of it is low, first of all. So make sure you've got a plan B. Make sure you've got other ways to make money. The second thing I would say is your desire to be on stage does not entitle you to a speaking career. Just because you like it and you have fun out there is not enough. Like it's just full stop, not enough. You have to have something that's actually of value, of use. You need to care about your audience. You need to care about them more than you care about yourself, which brings me back to be easy to work with. I mean, it is not about you. Yes, you are the conduit of this idea. And yes, you are the embodiment of it. But the minute you start thinking it's about you is the minute that you've got the balance all wrong. That's what this is really about because it's the audience that hires you. It's the audience that decides whether or not you're valuable. It's the audience that will talk about you afterwards. The audience that will sink or swim your future career. Because back to Jane's question, if you are a jerk to the audience or to the meeting professional, word gets around pretty quick. And you know it doesn't matter how good you are on stage. If you're an absolute jerk, you will eventually stop working because of it. I almost think I can bring it back to your initial story to where that performance review person is the audience. And sometimes it's not the best fit and that's okay. But there are plenty of beaches to play on, plenty of audiences who are HR that's going to give you raving reviews. They're going to keep hiring you back. And I think it's kind of an interesting, nice full loop to our conversation from something that was very negative, but gave you the perspective to make sure that your message lives and that there's value so that when that next review comes up, which all the audience are going to be giving their feedback as an HR reviewer at the end of the day, they might say you're cheeky, but these days is probably taken as an enduring term. And that's why they continue to bring you back and your cheeks to the stage. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it really does come down to that, Ryan. It comes down to you can be a speaker or you can be a communicator. And you can be a professional speaker or you can be a professional who speaks. And a lot of times I find that people really want professionals who speak 
as opposed to someone who might just be a speaker, but less connected with the ground floor, the roots, with the boots on the ground. Yeah. And that's another thing. And I know and have as very dear friends, people who are essentially only keynoters. And I, I'm not wired that same way because I cannot speak about a thing that I am not continuing to do. Right. And it's useful for me. Like I love being able to constantly see where new questions are arising and new challenges are, are evolving, but it's a different kind of thing. Like I said, I think there is a difference between you know, to me, the difference between speaking and communicating is communicating is making sure that what is spoken is received and acted on. Yep. And I will take being a professional communicator or um, a professional who communicates professionally any day over being a speaker. And that's not a diss on people who are speakers, but I think that that's particularly early in your career or really if you're at any kind of inflection point in your speaking career, that's a decision that you need to make is that are you out to wow the crowd or are you out to change them? My goal would always to do both because that's the standard that I want to meet. I don't want to just wow the crowd. I want to change how they see the world, not just in that moment, but afterwards, because that's where real change happens. And if I don't feel like if somebody's not still thinking about something that I've said and not practicing it six months later, then I haven't done my job. And I, frankly, I wish that's when they sent evaluations about speakers. Like in the moment, people are going to fill out those smile sheets based on how they much they liked lunch as much as anything else. I want to know what the audience thinks about three months, six months later. What do they remember? What ideas do they remember? Which ones are they actually putting into practice? Because those are the speakers that can actually effect change. And those are the ones that I think that are fundamentally worth it. And I think what we're going to see as live events come back and because of the rise of virtual events and all of that, I think there's going to be a lot more pressure on showing return for the investment in a professional speaker. It's going to be the speakers who either have already done that work or are actively doing that work now to make sure that their ideas actually turn into action that those are the ones that are going to be most successful long-term. So that you win the war for your idea and forgive me for being cheeky, but maybe we call you a keynoticator. There you go. A keynoticator. I'll take it. That works. All right. Well, hey, I appreciate this insight, the passion, the cheekiness. It all worked out and it was very delightful. There you go. At the end of the day. <laughs> I love how you bring things back, right? It's a it is an evidence of your listening, which is lovely. And not a lot of people do it. Well, I want to listen to how we can connect with you on the World Wide Web. So you've got your book. You've got all kinds of crazy content. You are a keynoticator that is ready for hire. Yes. Uh, full price, no half price. Don't get the wrong impression here. But how can people find you, follow you, connect with you, check you out, all that kind of stuff? The best way to get in touch with me is I am the only Tamsin Webster in the universe, so I'm not difficult to find. So TamsinWebster.com, however, is the hub of all things Tamsin. That's where you can find information on my book, on my speaking, and sign up for my newsletter, which is what I'd most love people to do because I try to make sure that that is useful every week as well. So just real practical advice on how to improve your messages, how to make your content stronger, how to make your ideas irresistible. And how to find the questions to answer that people think they want, but you know what they really need. 
Yeah. So thanks again for your time and your insights, your energy and your cheekiness. I'll say you're the cheekiest person I've interviewed in a while. And it's great. That's fabulous. I will take it. Like I said, I decided there and then that I was going to take it as a compliment and go look for places where cheekiness was valued. Well, it's valued here on the world of speakers. And so if you found this not only cheeky, but beneficial to you, then share it with some of your speaker friends or people who are upcoming in the speaking world. We always need those younger spots to fill on the stages in which we just simply can't fill them all. So I believe in abundance. There's room for everybody up on the stage all around the world. And as Tamsin said, in this new era, there's a lot of competition. So make sure that you stick out by being really good at what you do and caring about your audience more than you care about you. My name is Ryan. You can find me and all things Ryan at ryan.online. Talk about easy. And uh, we will see you on another episode soon. But Tamsin, this is great. I hope to share the stage with you sometime. I do too. Looking forward to it, Ryan. Someday. Someday soon. Someday soon. All right. We'll talk to you then. All right. Take care. Adios. Adios.